G'day mate, 40 here, hanging out at Shelley Beach in Manly and I've uh, been watching the World Cup and remember how like Russia's like you know, about the worst nation out there and with, with Putin's new restrictions that uh, Putin's Russia is now approaching you know, Nazi and, and Stalinist levels of terror and that's that's where I'm hearing from from our elites and yet Russia held the last World Cup did it not in 2018 and they were nowhere near the crazy kinds of restrictions and interference with the the press and limits on where you could go and limits on what you could say and limits on photos you could take right so Russia was just like any other first world nation the 2018 World Cup, but 2022 in Qatar, all sorts of ridiculous restrictions being imposed. It seems to be emblematic of how primitive, repressive, medieval the Arab Islamic world is, like, and how far it has to go to catch up to the rest of the world. So very disturbing story I found in the Washington Post, guys. Not sure if you you realize this, but uh, for the LGBTQ community, shooting wasn't first instance of hate in Colorado Springs. This blew me away. I, I thought for sure it was uh, the first instance of hate. But uh, apparently they'd experienced hatred before. My God. So they equate like this shooting with other examples of hatred. Like Club Q was Diamond Kobe Linsky's first gay bar. Right, so this is Diamond is is presumably male, female, trans. But they tried out drag as a teenager, dancing and lip syncing. Is where they came for their first drink. That's nice, where they rang in birthdays with their adoptive family. A lesbian couple that took them in after childhood in foster care. Yeah, you'd think hate didn't date back very far, but then you read the shocking headline. Absolutely in the Washington Post. Like this was their chosen family of bartenders, their drag performers, and other upstanding members of the LGBTQ community who gathered at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Now it's become a crime scene. And this has forced Mr. Miss Kobolinski to ponder just how integral this venue for queer life has been. It's a, it's a beacon in a place once known as Hate City. Right? Did you know that uh, Colorado Springs was, was known as Heart City? Club Q is my everything. Safe space is a number. That's the biggest shock meant something this was a safe space. Okay, so let's say other communities tried to create their own safe spaces. So Catholics create communities where only Catholics are welcome. Hey, Jews create communities where only Jews are welcome. Blacks create communities where only Blacks are welcome. Let's imagine whites create communities where only whites are welcome. Would that also be glorified as a safe space? Well, this is one of one of the only gay bars in Colorado's second largest city. So, Colorado Springs, man, it is a hateful place. They only have a limited number of gay bars. Could you imagine living in a city that only has, like, five gay bars? Just imagine how absolutely stultifying that would be. Did you know that Club Q was a welcoming haven for free expression? one of the capitals of American conservatism. Thank God for the left out there fighting for free expression. What's the all-in cost of an Aussie junket such as this, Luke? So the key to my Aussie junket is bludging. Bludging off my friends and my relatives, right? So I'm not paying anything for rent, not paying anything for hotels. I just have minimal expenses. I'm just... Uh, paying for my food and that's it so my my plane ticket for direct flights was something like 2100 
Yeah, Milo was photographed with Kanye, so Milo's always where the action is happening. He, he interned for Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene, and he's always, you know, the, the next new thing in populism. So I spent about 2100 for my plane tickets, and then I'm probably spending $20, $25 a day for food. Let's say $20 a day for food. And I'm spending about a dollar a day for public transport. And uh, that's it. Excessive sponging. Yeah. Bludging is the Australian profession where you know, you're, you're living off other people. So when I tell people this in Australia, they say, well, that's what family's for, to, to bludge after. So anyway, this uh, tight-knit LGBTQ community uh, they experience Club Q as a haven for free expression. Well, if you get to choose who you hang out with, you can have free expression. Like I have free expression when I go to an Orthodox synagogue. I can talk about almost anything at my, my favorite Orthodox synagogues. So you allow people to choose who they hang out with, and free expression just wondrously, miraculously appears. You don't even have to put any effort into it. But we destroyed freedom of association with 1960s civil rights laws. So now only sacred groups get to have safe spaces and freedom of expression. The rest of us have to put up with all sorts of unwanted diversity and unwanted restrictions on speech because we're not part of a sacred group like the LGBTQ community. Uh, they get to have safe spaces. They get to have free speech, which, which the, the rest of us did too. Did you know that Colorado Springs was struggling to move past its label as ground zero for the evangelical push to limit gay rights? It's a tendentious way of, of phrasing things. Right? The evangelical push to limit gay rights right, is a reaction to the incredible expansion of gay rights and the preservation of safe spaces for evangelical Christians. So who is this worst optics for, uh, Milo or Kanye? I have no idea. I, I can't. Kanye doesn't make any sense to me. It's not someone I can relate to. Uh, Milo sometimes makes sense to me. I, I can't take either of them terribly seriously. But this notion that right, Colorado Springs is ground zero for the evangelical push to limit gay rights, that when you keep expanding rights, you hamper the rights of other groups. Right? You expand LGBTQ rights, right? you're limiting you're limiting rights for Christians. Yeah, they're helping each other circle the drain. <laughs> right, you expand you know, rights for minorities. That comes at the expense of the majority. It's not like rights is just something that you can endlessly expand for, for different groups and there's never going to be a backlash. Yeah, the mile-high air compromises thought processes. Like, just imagine they they do this this article in a headline for LGBT community shooting wasn't first instance of hate in Colorado Springs. So essentially, they're equating evangelical Christians trying to maintain their own safe spaces with this mass murder, right? and we don't even know a motive for this attack. But this spurt of violence has punctuated a wave of rising anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and laws. So people trying to you know, stand up for their own safe spaces, right, for their own religion, for their own communities, for their own way of life, right? They, they are responsible for this spate of you know, anti-LGBTQ violence. Right. For a city whose recent history has been sullied by three decades of political attacks on transgender and gay people over spousal benefits, 
non-discrimination rules, and even the ability to start high school clubs has felt like a punch in the gut. Okay, so I'm not sure that Colorado Springs history has been sullied by these things. So these are political attacks. Why, why is LGBTQ rights expansion not a political attack on traditionalists and heterosexuals? Right? Why is limiting the ability to start high school clubs and limiting the ability of grooming of kids? So these anti-bullying clubs are usually you know, grooming clubs. Like, why is limiting the ability of groomers you know, some spade of hatred? Spousal benefits. Okay, well, someone's got to pay for those benefits. If society doesn't recognize heterosexual marriage as special, then who knows what moral chaos will descend from that when you just dispense with millennia-old ways of organizing community and families. Right? We've never had a gay marriage before in human history until recently. You think you can just dispense with this and there are no dangers? So the LGBT community says we've made great strides. Right? These great strides have come at a tremendous price, right? You would not have had the AIDS explosion. You would not have had the AIDS explosion if not for the expansion of LGBTQ rights. Often expanding rights for a group plays into many of its worst impulses and uh, it's not good for the group. Right? The, the backlash against police and policing since the murder of George Floyd has been really bad for much of the black community led to an explosion of crime, an explosion of murder, explosion of pedestrian deaths and driving deaths as police are pulled back from doing their job. Right? The black community has suffered you know, the biggest increases in murder and traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths. Should we purge anyone who makes a living off of victimhood and anything related to it? No, I just think we should try to limit it, limit the, the legal incentives to file you know, victimhood lawsuits. I, I don't think you can have a group identity without a substantial element of victimhood. But we can you know, shift society so that uh, ex public expressions of victimhood aren't rewarded. Right, right now we're rewarding lawsuits of victimhood and public expressions of victimhood and we can discourage that. So victimhood was a key part of group identity in the 1950s, in the 1850s, and the 1750s. Just wasn't encouraged by society. So gay and transgender residents describe Colorado Springs as a difficult place to be out. Some citing recent episodes of discrimination and hate crimes. Well, what about you know, those who have a traditional understanding of life, trying to maintain that? Are they not suffering discrimination and hate crimes? Their traditional way of life is you know, urinated on. So I'm not sure that it's uh, the Jews who've mastered the quintessence of victimhood. I think it's uh, pretty much Jews have taken their cues from blacks, and then blacks are taking their cues from Jews, and LGBTQ community and women are taking their cues from blacks and Jews. So I think everyone's gotten into the, the victimhood game. I think the pioneering group were African-Americans. And then Jews took their cues from African-Americans, though Jews also played a substantial role in the black civil rights campaign because they saw it as uh, good, good for the Jews. So did you know that Colorado was once infamous for its anti-LGBTQ laws? But these so-called anti-LGBTQ laws were simply attempts to maintain freedom of association so that you could hire who you wanted, that you could rent out your property to who you wanted, that you could form the type of community that you wanted. So expansion of rights for, for one group might comes at an enormous price for other groups. So Washington Post story from around 1990 says that Colorado Springs has developed a reputation for intolerance and venomous values-based politics. 
you can't have a safe space without intolerance. Right? Club Q is intolerant of you know any anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and behavior. Right? So one group trying to maintain its values will inevitably feel like intolerance and you know venomous politics to another group. So focus on the family. It's one of the largest, most influential groups to arrive Colorado Springs. It proposes same-sex marriage and promotes conversion therapy. Widely discredited practice purports to cure gray and transgender people. I don't know, is it really widely discredited? So plenty of therapists and psychiatrists have had success helping people who want to abstain from particular types of sex. Uh, it's not so much a cure, but it's a practical behavioral abstention. Right? They, they want to maintain their place in society. They want to maintain you know, solid family life. And so they want to maintain, you know, uh, they want to, you know, maintain their marriage by avoiding reckless promiscuity and going to bathhouses. It's underneath us always, says a queer study scholar at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, the military religious organizations. They are cultivating things that may inspire a place like Colorado Springs to be the next target of a mass shooting. Really? Now, we don't even know why this mass shooting took place. We do know that a judge let this guy out and he should be in prison. If we just locked up these super predators and kept them in prison, right, we wouldn't have these mass shootings. But apparently the presence of the military and religious organizations are there just bubbling up underneath the next hate crime. So important political movement came in 1992. Conservative activists rallied in support across the state for a ballot measure known as Amendment 2, which added a clause to the state constitution preventing municipalities from passing gay rights protections. Well, by preventing municipalities from passing gay rights protections means you maintain freedom of association for other groups, right? You maintain safe spaces for evangelical Christians and people who wanted to be selective in who they hired and who they rented to. So this vote was successful, right? The people voted for it. They approved the amendment, even as they voted for Democratic Bill Clinton. Then four years later, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the amendment unconstitutional. So the people voted, democracy spoke, uh, people wanted to maintain freedom of association, but that's all overruled by the courts. Great. Wonderful. People can say what they want, but in the end, the courts will rule. and they'll let you know what is permissible. Look at this wonderful lizard. Looks like a dinosaur, but smaller. Democracy for me, but not for thee. Yeah, remember when we, we passed Proposition 187 in California? Jesus Christ. Is he going to eat me? Why is he approaching me? Do you think he'd... Do you think he'd bite me? Is he going to, like, take a big chunk out of my leg? But we're, uh, We're live on, uh, YouTube. I don't... I don't have any food. He's, uh... He's probably being fed too often by people. I don't think they're poisonous. Sure, <laughs> hope not. But come on, mate. So who's who's more scared right now? So there was a there was a bigger one and a smaller one. It's our reptilian overlords. It's the lizard people.
And as long as he doesn't come back with the, the bigger version. Welfare dependent lizards. Snakes pretty nice. It just shows how memory plays tricks with you. I lived on the Upper West Side for four years. I've been to the show countless times, but uh, for some reason, I a little had much thought you see here. the ark. Uh, you see the the the, um, the bima. It's on the stage there. Uh, I mean, where you got but the bima is, is right in front of the Aron Kodesh. For some reason. So the bima is kind of similar to the pulpit in in Protestantism. It's where. The rabbi speaks, it's where they unroll the Torah scrolls and read aloud from them. It's where the Chazan, the cantor, leads the, the prayers. It's usually in the middle of the synagogue. And it's in front of the Holy Ark, the Aaron Kodesh, where they keep the Torah scrolls. Reason I was confusing it in my mind with Rome. Here's what Rome looks like. Uh, you can see it. They moved it down. Um, it used to be that the, the Bima was uh, right in front of the Aron Kodesh, like in the Jewish center, but a number of years ago they moved it uh, so it's in front uh -oh. of uh, the comes. stage, I guess you could call that. Yes, I showed the picture here. But it I just know, shows you how memory... Like, I've been there every week for the last 10 years. Okay. Well, I was also there, right? It's on the West Side, but it showed, it's been over 20 years. And it's just, I want to give you an example of how you always have to check. So I thank you. Because in my mind, I was remembering it as it if the like uh, was in front of the stage. And it's not. And that's, uh, this is a perfect example of what... Uh, there, we'll see the Rabbanim we're speaking about uh, when the Bima was moved to the front, uh, which is very church-like. Although, as we'll see, the Kesef Mishnah... So the, the Bima, the pulpit in Judaism, is usually kind of in the center of the synagogue. It's not up front like a, a pulpit. Yeah, the lizard heard the Jewish accent. Immediately associated it with affluence and food. Why is he coming on to me like this? I doesn't see a problem with it at all. Uh, that's the first thing I want to mention. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for that effort. Uh, thank you for the questions and the corrections. I always appreciate it. One of those things that bothered me in that show. <laughs> okay, this uh, I quoted this book last week from Rav David Cohen. If you notice, his name is Cohen, but it's really Khan. He's not a Cohen, but uh, in English uh, they write it as um, he's, he's uh, Cohen. Uh, he's a well-known rabbi in uh, in Flatbush, uh, uh, Posek, and. Uh, I have to say, when the uh, history of the sexual abuse issue is finally written, he will come out uh, very well, because uh, it does seem like now there's been a change, at least not the elder rabbis, but like the younger generation, when I say younger, like in the 50s, early 60s of the Haredi world, is finally taking it seriously after uh, it's already been a generation, decades. But it needs to be said that... Um, Rav David Cohen already decades ago was saying that you hear about sexual abuse, you got to go right to the police, and uh, there were people who hated him because of that. And, uh, he, he was, you know, and there people said all sorts of bad things about him, but when the history is finally written, an honest history of how the Orthodox community responded to child abuse, it's going to be very hard to write the honest history because the Aguda circles will not want to let their archives open, and what they did to uh, prevent you know, going to the police and uh, things coming out. Or if David Cohen on this issue, uh, say what you will about other issues, on this issue, he, from the beginning, stood up against his own community and uh, was saying to do the right thing. So Yasha Koach to uh, uh, David Cohen. Uh, I mentioned uh, my name last week, Eli Melech, and I just repeated Melech. It's really Melech, not that people call me Eli Melech. It's not so. I repeated the story, the, uh, the thing that everyone says, that the first Eli Melch is Eli Melch of Lejetz. And I said, check the Otsar Rabbanim. The Otsar Rabbanim is a book I have here, which um, it's um, oh, 400 pages. It, it says that it lists every rabbi in, ever in history of any significance. So uh, I looked at it, and uh, it's not exact. There's I count two Eli Melechs, none of whom are at all significant, 
before Eli Melch of Legenz. So I think you need to say that from Ravelli Melch of Legenz, then the name became popular. Not that it's first. And then I got a, a, an email, I'm also saying that from Mike and uh, from uh, uh, Moshe. Uh, and he actually sends me an article. Uh, here it is. Uh, is that really true? And also, it cites some examples from before. But uh, so, if we want to be exact, we could say that the name Elimelech did exist, but uh, it wasn't uh, popular. In terms of names, someone asked me, uh, "What do I have to say about uh, you know non-Jewish names?" Uh, we spoke about non-Jewish names as a Jew from Ramosha about this. We spoke many times about this, about the names like Tarfon and Papa, and even the name Maimon and others. So I don't need to repeat that. Uh, but I, I will say as well. And the lizard is mimicking the behavior observed among hen, hemless transient drug addicts, loiter long enough, like the gives. Maybe maybe he wants uh, mushrooms. Is this an example of maladaptive survival behavior? Anyone not moving through the area might be there to fatten, fatten his belly. Maybe he sees me as a peer. Damn, this lizard is close. Doesn't he realize how dangerous I am? This is what's interesting, which I, 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 you know, my daughter's name is Yael. I don't think I've ever mentioned this, so I'll say it. For Yaakov Emden states, I even printed it out, just so I have for you. I don't want to check. It's Biras Migdalos, section Evan Bochen, uh, page, uh, section number 14. He says that Yael, even though she was at Sadekin. Okay, it looks like an Australian water dragon. So how dangerous are these? Like, is my life at risk here? I don't like the idea of going eyeball to eyeball with a dragon. I watch Game of Thrones. That doesn't usually end up well. Yes. Low Haisa Yisraelis. He says that Yael was not Jewish. So Yael is a character in the early books of the Bible who goes to bed with a, a Gentile general, Sisera, something like that, and uh, kills him in his sleep. She seduces him and then feeds him, and then she kills him. Yeah. Damn, I hope this lizard's been vaccinated. Luke Ford, father of water dragons. I don't know where he gets that. All the other sources assume she was. The whole discussion about Avera Rishma assumes she was. But Ravapa Vendon, for reasons I'm not sure if any of you can enlighten me as to why he says this, he doesn't say why. He actually repeats this in his Mikpachas Farim, which is his attack on the Zohar. He says that Yael... Not only is Yael not a Jewish name, Yael was not Jewish. I don't know, Jewish is not the best uh, term in those days, so it was not uh, Israelite, I guess you could say, because Jewish is from the tribe of Yehuda. But uh, that's what he says, he says Israelite. So I, I find that uh, unusual. And in terms of names, Robbie, thank you for writing to me. I have to, what Robbie says, I knew what Robbie said, but... Uh, I, I forgot. I never pay attention to it. Robbie's Englishman. I've mentioned many times. Cecil looks well fed, doesn't he? Look at that enormous belly. Yeah, look how it's like you know, moving in and out with his breath. It's very well fed. So rough. And as any Englishman knows, it's not Cecil, it's Cecil, just like Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes. Uh, so I did know that, but what can I say? As an American, I just keep pronouncing it incorrectly. So I will try uh, I will try from now on to call him by his name, uh, Cecil Roth, uh, since that's how he calls himself. Uh, although we have plenty of examples of how we refer to people, not exactly how they uh, uh, called themselves. Uh, hold my hand out like I have food and see if he comes. No, I don't want to be touched by this creature. This creature scares me. Like, who wants to go eyeball to eyeball with a dragon? Uh oh, Jesus. Is he coming for me? It can move fast when it needs to. The person who pointed out that in Hungarian it's temple for synagogue, uh, I wanted to see if this still continues. So I, we're going to be seeing the Rabbi Oberlander, the Rabbi Budapest, this um, Wednesday. And he says that although among the younger generation, they're now saying synagogue, because they don't like to use her temple, he says his mother, uh, he's from a, the Papa Hasidic group, she would still, he says, call it.
No, I'm pretty sure lizards are not kosher. I just, I just sense he's giving me the evil eye, but I sense that he can see right through me. I sense that, like, he knows who I am. He knows what I've done. He knows the things that I've said, and he's not happy with me. Do you get the sense he's not happy with me? So I find that very interesting that uh, in Hungary, that was one of the words they used for a synagogue. Oh, I have a few more minutes, so quickly I can say what I wanted to show you. Uh, and then I won't have anything else. This takes us back to uh, last semester um, with uh, Ramosha Feinstein and um, reciting Hallel on Pesach night. Lo and behold, I found, Ramosha holds that uh, he's very much against the Briskerov's position. He says, stay in the show. If it's not your minhag, we're going to have this in two months. Uh, stay in, say halal, but don't say it with the brother. The Briskerov we saw, he, he's not into that sort of thing. You don't say, you're not supposed to say halal, don't say halal. Bracha, no bracha, you don't do it because it's uh, just, you don't just do it. So he walk, walk out. In, in this book, the Ma'anel Egrot, the uh, attack on Ravnosha. I can send anyone a PDF who wants this. You will not find this book on Hebrewbooks.org. You will not find it on Ozer Chachma. There's a boycott against this book, uh, which I think is wrong. It's true. The author is a machutzaf, and uh, he speaks disrespectfully about Ramosha, but he makes many good points. It's full of learning. Uh, Rav Yosef quotes it. Every time he quotes it, he says that... Uh, but the author should have spoken with more respect to Ramosha. I understand when the book came out, it's, it looks just like the Ramosha, the same publisher. In fact, when the printer was printing it, he realized what it was, and he called Ramosha, and he said, this is recorded in the biography of Ramosha. You know, what should he do? Well, he has a contract, and he doesn't want to print it. Ramosha says, you can print it, but, uh, you know, because you lose money otherwise. So he printed it, and none of the foreign stores would carry it. I got my copy from the author himself. Uh, it's no longer alive, but uh, I got my copy. But uh, like I said, there's a boycott, which I think is wrong because it's 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 a part of a, of a Torah history. The, um, it, there's a lot of learning in it, and uh, if we're going to start censoring, I understand because Ramosha is closer to our time. We knew Ramosha, but at the end of the day, if we're going to start censoring all the books that uh, say disrespectful things, I just mentioned Rebecca of Ending. Forget with Jonas Leibshitz. He says disrespectful things about lots of people. Are we going to start uh, censoring the Torah literature, the Satmarebi, what he says, Roshach? I mean, you, you can't start, I, I don't believe in uh, cancel culture in the Torah world. So, uh, uh, but it's a collector's item, I can tell you that. And uh, I do have a, a PDF of it because some, uh, I think he's probably a Satmar guy made a PDF of it. But on Simon, uh, I am Gimel. He goes against Ramosha. He's always going against Ramosha. Either Ramosha is too lenient or Ramosha is too strict. Ramosha can never get it right. But uh, he has a whole chuva here say that, no, there's nothing wrong with saying hello. If, if, you're, if you're in a show where they say it with a bracha, you go ahead and say it with much of it. This is great. We, we are cleansing our souls in the waters of Torah. Uh, we are refreshing our neshamas, our souls, here in the wellsprings of Torah from the good doctor, historian, Rabbi Mark Shapiro, hanging out at Shelley Beach, looking at a, is this an Australian water dragon? Just giving me the evil eye. He says he has no problem. Uh, this is Rav Yom Tov Halevi Schwartz, uh, the same author of this wonderful book called Eyes to There's See. another one. You got a big one? In which, uh, he's in the sense of the frame? Much bigger one. Eyes to See. Is the same one who wrote the Mon uh, which, as I said, is, is unfortunate. Uh, the middle, the big one in the middle. But a very interesting book, uh, nevertheless. Uh, and finally, we also spoke, uh, it was the, the first class, I believe, in this series about violating Shabbos for uh, non natural remedies. And, and, um, I think it was Bill mentioned that uh, something about Rafael Peller and the Rav. I found, I, I, I found it, but then, and also uh, M sent, Moshe sent me also. It's in, in Mipnini Harav, page 81, by Rav Shefter. It tells this great story from Rabbi Reese that uh, once on some or other, Rav was learning with a bunch of students, and uh, the phone uh, rang, and of course, uh, 
Oh, the phone rang, and Ralph gets up, and he goes to the next room, and he picks it up, and he starts speaking on the phone, on Yom Tov. And uh, Ralph comes back, and he sees the students, of course, he's a little surprised, what's the Ralph doing on? The Ralph is not like Rabbi Rackin. Rabbi Rackin held that he could talk on the phone on Yom Tov. The Ralph didn't hold this. But uh, he told them the story as follows, that uh, in the morning, before he went to sh- uh, before he went to show, the telephone was ringing, just kept ringing, and they wouldn't answer it. After davening, they came back home. In the middle of lunch, uh, a non-Jewish neighbor rings the doorbell, and he tells them that he has a telegram for Soloveitchik. And Soloveitchik says to him, you know, we don't open it, so they didn't understand where he opened uh, the telegram. And uh, the telegram uh, said, lift up, the answer the phone, hi and help and what was the story? Chaim Heller was in Lakewood over Yom Tov, and he became quite ill, and the doctor says he immediately needs to uh, have an operation, and he did not want to have this operation without consulting with Rav So the telegram, so Rav was speaking to Chaim Heller, and that was regarded as, I don't know if on Yom Tov, that's but it was a serious uh, matter, and that's the story that uh, Bill told. Furthermore, in Neged um, Givot Olam on uh, page 101, he records, this is Rabbi Shurkin, Michael Shurkin, also a student of the Rav, uh, uh, that the, the, the Vilna Gon held that you, about a certain Sadiq, I guess maybe more than one, you could violate Shabbos to get a bracha from him. And uh, Rav Moshe finds to himself in the Igor Moshe, volume 8, Orachayim, number uh, uh, 16, says that you can write a Kamea on Shabbos if um, if it will, you're worried that without it, the person will die. In other words, if the person uh, feels that he needs, he needs this Kamea, you can do it. And the last thing I'll mention, Rav Nachum Rabinovich, in his Tshuvot Siach Nachum, he goes even further. He says that social workers are allowed to travel on Shabbos if there's a terrorist attack, if they could, uh, because the trauma is such, it's the equivalent of a chola sheyeshbo sakana, and he cites the uh, the Rashba that the Rashba says uh, to say that you can also write a kameya on Shabbos uh, for a chola sheyeshbo sakana or for a woman who just gave birth to uh, Kama. Um and that was what I suggested that that could possibly be a permission. Okay, so now I have no other things in my pile until everyone else uh, sends me more stuff. So let's pick up. My sign here. Uh, we were in the middle, if you remember, about, uh, we're talking about Israel Jacobson and uh, David Friedman, the reformers. The last thing I was talking about was Israel Jacobson uh, in uh, Zizit, his synagogue there. And he says as follows, why create a reform service? He says, quote, who would dare deny that our service is sickly because of many useless things? And as you're saying, all this stuff in the prayers that are, are useless. I don't know what he considers useless and what's not. Do you know what type of uh, lizard this is? I'm not sure, but uh, I think he, for him, maybe He's only scary Shema looking. and uh, the reform version of Shema yesterday would be uh, valuable. I don't know. And then he goes on, this has degenerated into a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulae. Yeah. <laughs> He's got me cornered. <laughs> Looks like a dinosaur. <laughs> Is the blue tone? I don't know. I, he's just scaring me. <laughs> he looks like 10 million years old. And there's a littler one as well. There's a there's one that's like smaller, like a baby. So maybe this is the father and the mother and then they've got a baby. You're the I'm the grandfather. I'm the f- grandfather of dragons. <laughs> he doesn't look starving either, does he? 
They're, they're well fed. It's giving me the evil eye. Yeah, there's a little. They don't seem nervous, do they? No. Stress it, thing they don't understand. Have a nice day. Take care. Bye. It's not bad being the father of dragons. What should we name this bloke? I presume this is the Sheila. And this is the bloke. I think that uh, Mark Shapiro's teachings have a, have a uh, calming effect on them. That it kills devotion more than it encourages it, and that it limits our religious principles to that fund of knowledge which for centuries has remained in our treasure house without increase and without ennoblement. So he says it kills devotion, it's a faultless recitation of prayers and formulae. Now this is something obviously the Orthodox struggle with as well. No one can deny that people, uh, you know, as I said, it's the routinization. So the Orthodox, they'll have to do their own way of trying to make it to, we, we don't cut things out unless they're like matters that are not really essential to the dolphin. I'm in his territory where he keeps his females. No, uh, uh, a dragon. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a littler one. I'm wondering if this is the father, mother, and baby. They're very brave, eh? They're not scared of us. Yeah. They they look well fed. You know, they're not starving, are they? They eat well. I think that neck blows out when he needs to. I don't know why he can make it make himself look really scary with it. Don't they look like dinosaurs? Yeah, like many dinosaurs. Yeah, like a relic from the past. Oh, jeez. I hope they're not poisonous. <laughs> I hope I'm still here when you come back. What do you want, mate? Am I on your territory, buddy? is they often had a good diagnosis of what was going on. You know, their solutions were, also, were the problems. But of course there's a diagnosis that, uh, that the people find certain aspects of the service long and boring, and we've made changes when we could. I've said it numerous times, just look at the dish above that you have today and compare that to when we were growing up, where I'd sit in show for, as a youngster, hours and hours listening to keynotes. What's a guy, what's a 12 or 13-year-old? Just read them again and again. Uh, so now we've made changes. So, but that's uh, you know there's a lot of principles as well. But uh, the reformers are not so concerned about that. Uh, and then he says uh, that these prayers have remained oh, in our boy. treasure houses without increase or ennoblement. That is, we have to change the prayers because uh, we can't recite prayers the same way they've been recited for a thousand years, two thousand years. Uh, we need some changes. Now, I just want to take back a bit what I said that in terms of uh, 
you know, make it seem as only the reformers. Because there's a video of an interview. There's a guy he deals with high school kids. I, I can find him. I forget his name. And he interviews with Herschel Schefter. And he says that in a lot of our high schools, the kids come in and they don't want to help. You know, they don't come from such religious homes. Or they're teenagers. Teenagers, you know, they're, they're not so into it often. So Rav Schechter says to him, so then they don't have to dive in all this. And I don't know if the person was a little surprised. He says, so what should they do? So Rav Schechter says, he says, okay, he says, cut out this because of so the Zimmer. I think he says, do Rosh and then go to Ashray. And then I think he says, then go to Gregor's Kriachra. In other words, he cuts out. So it's like a 15 minute or even less, 10 minutes off of it. And this is not some reformer. This is what Schechter's saying for these kids. It's better to say a few things with Kavana than to have them sit there the whole time so they're born out of their minds. So by the time they get to the Shema, they're still thinking of uh, the sports game from the night before as they've been thinking for the last 10 minutes. So, so this is, you know, the post say for Schachter saying that, uh, you know, for those people, we're not talking about a show. The air show is problematic. But for the high school kids, and uh, you can have, I guess, different than you. You can have the who want to do everything and the kids who want up to it. And uh, I was, uh, I found that interesting that um, Rav Schechter said that. Uh, I didn't know. I wish I now, did. I think it's uh, um, called a frill because it got a frill around its neck. So it's not a frill neck lizard. I think it's a, um, oh, I used to live in Australia. I should know this. Uh, Komodo dragon. Komodo dragon. Yes. Okay. Are they poisonous? Um, no, but they have sharp claws, so if they run towards you, you lie on the ground, because then they'll just go over you, they won't try to crawl up, and there's poison in the claws. Poison in the claws, great. Great, I can't wait. Okay. So, you better don't get between the two of them. <laughs> I don't think I want to come between them. Where are you from? <laughs> uh, originally here, but California. Okay. Mainly. Komodo dragon. It's not a Komodo dragon. Water dragon, beauty dragon. Don't look forward to them getting their, their claws on me. Yeah, a single dragon can ruin your whole day. There they go. Just a frilled neck lizard. And the Agama family, you can tell by the head. Don't they look like dinosaurs? Wonder what they've come to you know what they've come to teach us. Maybe they have a message. Uh, you might be thinking, 
that, um, well, we've added a great deal to toe Judaism in recent years. But from uh, Jacobson's point, nothing is new. Everything just comes out of the same old sources. And since we're living in a different era, as we'll see, we need entirely new conceptions. And if, you know, if we're bound to Jewish law, then there's going to be limits to what we can do. So people like Jacobson aren't going to be happy. Now, Jacobson also was concerned with fitting in. Remember, at the synagogue, uh, the first... The inauguration was full of non-Jews. They too joined into the uh, the singing and everything. Uh, I can tell you that at the inauguration of uh, the show that I go to, there were also non-Jews at the inauguration. The mayor was there, the assembly people, and uh, they didn't speak, but they sat. Uh, actually, I should say that the mayor spoke. But the rest of them just sat there. I remember the mayor spoke. He, he spoke very ecumenical. The Australian Eastern Water Dragon. Is that the consensus? That the science? I want to fit in with the science here. Medically, about all our houses of worship and everything, and very nice. Um, but we didn't have psalms or hymns that we sang together with them. But Jacobson says as follows He says that parts of the Jewish prayer service and the rituals are offensive to reason. That is, they offend us. So we say things that we don't accept, we don't believe in. And then he says as well, also to our Christian friends. So Mark Shapiro is this great scholar and a great academic, and I was taken aback when I listened to one of his lectures where he talked about how he's kind of offended that there was this reformed Jewish day school named after Rashi. And he didn't think that Rashi was a good representative of reformed Judaism, but Rashi was a 12th, 13th century Jewish commentator, wrote commentaries on, on the Talmud and on the, the Torah. I think it all depends on where you're coming from. Like Mark Shapiro has been modern orthodox his whole life. So from his modern orthodox perspective, Rashi is not a good representative of Reformed Judaism. But if you believe that Reformed Judaism is true, you can certainly look at Rashi's life and say, oh yeah, it does, it does kind of reflect Reformed Judaism. So it's kind of taken aback when Mark said he was offended by the idea of a, a Reformed Jewish day school named you know, the Rashi school. I am 56 years of age. I've never been offended in my life, so the name of the school is not going to offend me. So this is going to be driving reform also, that uh, they need to fit in, not just in their understanding of what it means to be a modern person, but they don't want to do things that non-Jews will look at and say, well, uh, that's uh, retrograde or that's backwards. Uh, later, in his speech at the inauguration, speaking to the Christians, he says, quote, there is nothing in this, this this new temple that in any way contradicts the principles of pure religion, of the demands of general morality, of reason. Of okay, so pure religion according to whom? So this is 19th century Germany, which is largely uh, Protestant, right? So Protestantism is a religion of the heart, a religion of, of creed, of dogma, of theology, of faith. Right, so pure religion from a Protestant perspective is faith. But uh, pure religion from a Catholic or a Jewish perspective, it is behavior, it is ritual, it is community. Of a, your humanitarian attitude, of course, we today, in 2022, we would never say to the non-Jews, if the you know, dedication of our shul, there's nothing that we do in here that's in opposition to your humanitarianism. And we wouldn't feel the need to say that everything we do in here is in accord with uh, pure religion, with general morality. That We assume that everyone knows that synagogues were interested in morality. But you see that in the early part of the 19th century, he needs to stress that we're not different than you. We too are moral and we're not this synagogue, unlike those other synagogues, is a synagogue where uh, a Christian can come and feel brotherhood with the Jews because we all uh, are, are worshipping the one true God. You want So, right, you want to join forces with you know, some other group or emphasize that you're not a threat to some other group when you're in the inferior position. But when you feel safe and secure, then you have less desire to you know, form bonds and assure them that you know, you're not a threat. So, And Jews were very much the minority in, in Germany and felt concerned and afraid. Yeah, they wanted to make the argument that they weren't a threat. But in the United States, you know, Jews feel secure and safe and powerful and uh, they don't feel the same need to placate Christians that they did in 19th century Germany.
it's like uh, the war between religion and science. Now, religious leaders are very intent on saying there's no contradiction between religion and science. That's because science has won all those battles. And so this is a way for religious leaders to you know, give up the fight that they were losing. You won't find in this synagogue any of that orthodox mumbo-jumbo and superstition. I do want to add, however, that many people are probably thinking when you hear this that so reformed be concerned with the value. Always what the value have to say. And we're going to modify our service and we're going to change our practices because of the value. And I have to say that uh, there is a lot of truth to that feeling, but it's not complete without pointing out that we have plenty of examples where Orthodox or Torah leaders, because I don't want to use the word Orthodox, I'm speaking about, let's say, in medieval times, they're not Orthodox. There's no such thing as Orthodoxy yet. We haven't even got to Orthodoxy. Maybe with the Hassam Sofer, we'll start seeing Orthodoxy, right? We just have Torah Judaism and Reform Judaism, um, traditional Torah Judaism and, and Reform Judaism. Because we have a number of examples, I'll just give you some of them now, where post-Torah leaders have said that because of how things look to the Goyim, we should not do it. And uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, I should have asked Rabbi Desenio about this uh, a couple weeks ago, the Chief Rabbi of Rome. Uh, in Rome, uh, before the mid-19th century, one of the practices they used to do was they would drag the coffin of uh, rabbis, only rabbis, uh, they would drag the coffin, and this was thought to be a form of penitence. This is based on the idea that uh, Chizkiyahu, uh, to give penance to his wicked father, dragged his father's bones. So they would drag uh, the coffin, and uh, this is something this created problems, because the non-Jews look at this, this is, uh, and, oh, they made, and then they dumped it into the, they didn't let it down nicely into the grave, they'd actually push it in. And this was like skill. Okay, so when when that awful day comes that I will pass on from this world, maybe don't want you to drag my body through the streets, right? So don't treat me like a great rabbi. No, I'll be fine with just a traditional service. This was like uh, the, uh, the punishment of uh, stoning. Throw someone off uh, a high roof or something, and in fact, it's, I think even Rome would do all four all four types of um, punishments uh, after their death. There was a whole uh, formula they did as a form of penitence. Now, this created uh, negative feelings among the non-Jewish Romans. Can you imagine they see the people dragging uh, the coffin uh, through the streets. Okay, so now that I've converted to Judaism, I've largely forgotten how the non-Jew thinks. Would, would you be offended if you saw a bunch of Jews like dragging a dead body or a coffin of some revered leader, you know, through the streets? But would that bother you? Yes, however, was that this was only done for the sages, and they only did it every like 40, 50 years, once. So it wasn't such a, a big deal, uh, uh, but... Uh, Nevertheless, it was mocked during the carnival performances in Rome, and uh, uh, in fact, for over 200 years, the Jews of Rome asked the various popes to uh, forbid the performances where they used to mock the Jewish funeral practices. And it was, uh, it was finally abolished by the Jews in the 19th century because they had a rabbi there. He was the rabbi of Rome. He wasn't from Rome. He was from Eretz Israel. He came to Rome. His name was Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. Uh, he wrote a volume of Chuvot, a very interesting volume called the Krachshon Romi. Rabbi uh, Professor Jose Faur has a whole book on uh, Yisrael Moshe Chazan, a very fascinating figure. Well, if you look at his response number uh, 13, he talks about how, contrary to what the general Minhag was, a simple person, uh, Chazan calls him Pashudecha, the simple person, said he also wanted to be given the, uh, the Dalai Misos based in. He also wanted to be given the four mitot and uh, to be dragged. You know, I have to look in the tshuva. I, I, as I remember, you drag in the coffin. You're not dragged by yourself. <laughs> I'm going to look, though, because now I'm thinking of it. That would be even worse if you actually drag the body. But I, uh, I, I'm pretty certain that uh, that's my recollection, uh, that it's they drag the coffin, not, not the body. Because uh, um, they do bury coffins in Rome. Uh, um, now this is again going to be a problem. You're going to drag him and drag him into through the cemetery, which goes to the non-Jewish neighborhoods. And uh, Rabbi Shlomo Shachazan says, when we did it with the big rabbis, it was a very uncommon thing. But now, 
Esther on Purim, which comes from the book of Esther. Like in some Jewish communities, they, they hang up effigies of Haman and his sons. And so a lot of the, the non-Jews don't appreciate, you know, the hanging of, of effigies in their neighborhood. Well, you have simple people who want to do this. And that's going to create a mockery for Judaism. We now have good relations with the Christians. Can you imagine what that's going to do when they see us dragging uh, you know, dead people through the streets? It's going to make us, he says, seem like barbarians in their eyes. And therefore, he abolishes it. Is this a valid concern? Are we supposed to alter our practices because of the non-Jews? Uh, we don't stop doing mitzvot because of the non-Jews, but there are other sources I found similarly. So uh, there never gets to be a time when you can just you know, ignore how your behavior is going to be received by other people. Right? You can never be so secure, so successful, so strong, so happy. You can just be completely oblivious to how outsiders view what you're doing. Right? So if you form any sort of connections with a group, it's going to take on you know, some court-like behaviors. So the way to transcend this is to keep yeah one foot in your group but also consider how things look you know for an outsider and so here's here's the here's the baby another lizard on the run another dragon in the making and this place is just teeming with them The Rashbash. The Rashbash is Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, 15th century. 15th century uh, Algeria. He responds to a community where the minhag was when you went into the shul, you took off your shoes. We know that's what they did in outside the cities, for example, the villages. They did that. Did they get this from the Muslims? That this was a sign of respect? Um, it could be. I can tell you that. Right now, in Jerba, and by the way, I'm going, I'm going back to Jerba the week, the week after Shavuos. I got to get our, uh, our trip, but uh, one day we'll go, but I got to plan it. I was going to announce to everyone one day that we're the first uh, kosher tour from America, everyone in Jerba, but lo and behold, my, my friend there, my contact, told me, uh, I spoke to him last week, the group just left, a group of Hasidim, 17 Hasidim showed up in Tunisia last week and uh, they're the first kosher tour. And in, <laughs> in their whole garb and everything, uh, the Hasidim there. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I can tell you that in every single show in Jerba, when you go up to Yara Kodesh, and I, I had the cover of taking out the Torah one, but you have to take your shoes off. And in the famous show in Jerba, the Gariba, Gariba show, the, the, the big one there, everyone takes their shoes off before you go in the show. So you're all davening in the shul. What doesn't matter? So that's pretty rare that you have to take your shoes off to enter a synagogue, right? That's I, I've never encountered that. And, and, and when you come as a tourist, you take your shoes off too. So the whole shul for now, for thousands of years, you've been taking your shoes off there. So it is a. It's not a. Um, I think it's Rafael Kanievsky actually. No, it's Rechaim Kanevsky. He was asked about the practice of taking your shoes off, and he says it's uh, like from the Goyim. But it's not. They, we have it in Morocco. We know that they used to do it. Well, maybe originally it's from the Goyim, but I mean, it's been a Jewish practice for so long that it's a valid Jewish practice. So, uh, but he was asked about this, the Rashbash. Uh, now, there was a shul where some people insisted on taking your shoes off. And other people said, no, you can't take your shoes off because uh, this is, again, you're, you're imitating uh, the... I got my neck on this thing. You beauty. And what does the Rashbash say? And this is, uh, he's, there's a few different directions. Now we get to see both uh, both lizards in the frame.
States, the Russian hostage, but he's a major, major post-scheme. He says, you should take off your shoes. And he says, precisely by taking off your shoes, you'll gain respect by the non-Jews. Because for the Muslims, the idea of going to your house of worship and not taking off your shoes was a sign of disrespect. So, Okay, so if we take off our shoes at synagogue, will that, that gain more respect from the non-Jews asking for a friend? It's not like taking off your shoes is against halacha. There's good reasons to take off your shoes, you could argue. And therefore, now you can never imagine a Christian, a post-secular Christian man saying this, take off your shoes. They would see this as completely disrespectful, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes when you go to Shola, that's 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 the height of disrespect. Uh, but in the Muslim world, on the contrary, you have to have a good reason not to take off your shoes, because in that world, it was thought to be respectful to take your shoes off. Uh, you know that the Rambam says that uh, before davening, you're supposed to wash your feet? And uh, the rival on the spot there, Gavos Fiwa, says, what's going on here? Why would you wash your feet? He doesn't, uh, so it, it's, a, it, it's a very different understanding. The Rambam has a famous example. Take a look in the Chumas Rambo, number, uh, uh, the Blau edition, number 258. That's the Chuva where he deals with the practice of no Chazar and, uh, and this continues in certain Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, uh, they don't do this on Shabbos and Musaf. Uh, you read it together, that is, you restart at the Shmonasriya and Musaf. Only in Musaf, as I recall, they do this out loud, and then you get to Kedusha, and then everyone continue on your own. What about the Hecha Kedusha? Yeshivas do it sometimes. This is standard in Morocco. Okay, I think that'll do it for now. Bye bye.